NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Hello, viewers. Welcome to a collab that is finishing up our October 2020 look at electoral misinformation. And I'm going to go so far as to say sometimes disinformation. You're joining a group of people that are going to have a conversation with Mike Caulfield. And just to give you a little bit of background, in case you haven't been following this thread of work at the National Writing Project, it was about a year ago that we engaged Mike to help us think as writing composition teachers about how we can build uh, better techniques and structures and instructional approaches around helping young people with online credibility checks, with doing the kind of research that they need to do on the web, being ready for the slew of information, which especially is modern social media. And part of that was because we were very interested in an approach that Mike and his colleagues had created called SIFT. We'll hear a little bit more about it, but I can tell you that all the links you're going to need to follow up on everything will be on the show page. Well, that was about this time last year, and to much uh, acclaim, Mike introduced this approach to the National Writing Project, and then little did we know that 2020 would come and give us two of the hugest opportunities to apply these techniques, first with the pandemic and all the misinformation and disinformation where people were trying to make sense of the coronavirus and what was being learned about it. That yielded a lot of occasions and opportunities to look at how SIFT helps us look at misinformation. You'll find that on the show page as well. And then as if 2020 wasn't done with us at that point, we now have one of the most contentious elections, probably certainly in my lifetime, maybe in yours as well, where all sides of this election are pretty sure that the other side might be up to something. And so as we go searching for information about how we can vote, where we can vote, what's going on with voting this year, it puts us in touch with opportunities for lots of misinformation about voting itself. And that's what we're going to look at in this collab. One last thing, Mike has in this October run up to the election, just a few days away when you're watching this probably, has been writing a weekly blog about kind of what's out there in social media around electoral integrity and information about that. You will find links to that also on the show page. And now we're summing up what we saw and what we learned in this collab. So welcome and join us. Let me tell you who is here. So Mike is at the top of your screen and in the middle, but first we're going to meet some folks from the Writing Project, all of whom have the responsibility of working with other folks around the question of information, credible information, misinformation. We'll let them introduce themselves and start with Dina. Hi, I'm Dina Portnoy and I'm from the Philadelphia Writing Project and I'm a retired English teacher from the School District of Philadelphia but I continue to work with the writing project. And my connection to this is a couple of years ago through the NWP, we got a grant to do a journalism project and we partnered with a local education newspaper and we worked in a couple of schools and we uh, worked with kids and teachers and eventually 
we sort of focused in on one school where the principal was really interested in continuing this. Our interest was in part in getting journalism restarted in our high schools, which it, news, school newspapers had sort of disappeared. And number two, kind of building media literacy and understanding, little did we know how important that would turn out to be, but we already had some idea about fake news. So that was sort of part of our effort. And I continue to work with teachers in some schools and we run a summer program for kids in journalism. And you had a chance to introduce SIF to them this summer in that summer program. Yes, and I, well, actually I introduced SIF to the teachers. So teachers have been using bits and pieces in, in school and we did a little few, few things this summer. So yeah, so we've, we've, we've been using SIFT to some degree. Thanks, Dina. We're gonna jump over Mike and over to Bud. My name is Bud Hunt. I am a uh, former English teacher and current library administrator and educational consultant in Northern Colorado. I'm coming to you, to you today from a snowy Fort Collins with a fresh foot of snow outside. Currently, uh, I work at the public library to support all sorts of access to information and information projects. I'm the father of two teens and one preteen daughter. And then I work with uh, schools and districts around the country to help them figure out how to make sense of information. Forever ago, I taught high school journalism. And so this is near and dear to me. And just to the south, we were talking before we started, Dina knows people in Longmont, Colorado. The town of Longmont recently has been trying to figure out if uh, a library should be a news source. And so that's an open question in the state of Colorado at the moment and something I'm thinking a lot about. Fabulous. Let's go to Kim. So hi, I'm Kim Jackson and I'm uh, the director of the Northern California Writing Project and a professor at Chico State. I think about things like digital literacy and have worked for a long time in first year composition where we you know, want to understand with students the wave of information that's coming at them, which is something Mike talks about in actually one of the most recent blogs is this idea of this ocean of information. Our teachers have worked with the SIFT method from Mike and, and actually Mike sat in on some of your workshops and have really appreciated an approach that's usable with our students to have some really, you know, really productive conversations. So yeah, I come at it from working with future teachers and from working in first year composition with, with freshmen. And I think most of you know me, I'm Elise Ibanado. I direct the National Writing Project and like so many here was forever ago, a journalism advisor. So <laughs> no surprise that here we're having a conversation of folks working with young journalists in a, thinking about managing not only credibility research, but at the speed of social media, not like the old days, but the, the pace that writers move now. But actually, I'm thinking, Mike, I want to segue over to you. Uh, part of SIFT came out of actually a number of universities that you were working with where this problem of first-year composition, how do, we, how do we do that with young people now, rather than the way we might have done it decades ago, was actually a big part of it. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what SIFT is before yeah. we go on and talk about what we're seeing in the election this year. Sure, I'll give sort of a thumbnail uh, sketch of it. So you, you mentioned that it's, it's partially due to a shift in how we read and how we consume information, how we view, how we listen. 
if you think about the information environment now, a lot of information that reaches you has been stripped of really important context, right? So context about the author who, who wrote this, why they might have expertise. Context about the overall story. We'll see like a, a little blurb. Someone shares a story and someone writes a, a little blurb about it that says that, you know, this story proves X, this story proves Y. But is, is, that, is that really the correct framing, right? Is that the full context, right? So on the web, a lot of information that used to sort of be what we call bundled, right? You get a newspaper, it has a reputation. There'd be reporters associated with the newspaper that would, to some extent, get some of that, the reputational benefits of being associated with the newspaper. You'd read an article, but yeah, it had a headline, but if you were reading the headline, you also had the article in front of you. You had the full information, right? And of course, what the web does is it tends to unbundle that, right? So we get stuff that is, you know, that is a, a tweet of a tweet of a blog post of a story of a, uh, an original story that, you know, is covering a piece of research, for example. In, in that sort of game of telephone, things often get distorted. And likewise, uh, we're very often getting uh, information in this very granular but decontextualized way. We'll get short videos of an event, which are, you know, deceptively edited. We don't see the beginning, we don't see the end, right? And uh, done on purpose, right? Or, or reframed in these deceptive ways. So the idea of SIFT was really, uh, you know, that what we saw were that a lot of the problems that we thought were students having trouble with critical thinking, it wasn't actually students having trouble with critical thinking at all. They, they simply did not have the information they needed to start engaging with content. So SIFT encourages students to stop. If you feel emotional, feel surprised by something, if you want to share something, whatever it is, any strong reaction, just stop and ask yourself, remind yourself you're not as smart as you think you are, right? You're, not, you're probably not an expert in whatever you just read. You're in unfamiliar territory. Investigate the source. Here we're not talking about Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, uh, Woodward and Bernstein investigation. We're just talking like, do I know who this person writing this is? Do they seem particularly qualified to talk about it? then find uh, better coverage, which is the idea that a lot of the stuff that reaches us, we get the most inflammatory version or the most sort of decontextualized version because that's what flies across the web. Sometimes our best move is not to engage with the thing that reached us, but to find better coverage on the particular thing. The web is really, really good at feeding things that are in our narrow interests, right? excellent at that, but the things that come to us are, are often the worst examples <laughs> of, of coverage that we, that we find. So going, going and finding a better, uh, a better version of it, seeing what other people say, seeing what the consensus is. And then finally, uh, trace claims quotes in media to the original context. So a lot of the stuff that we see on the web, we'll see a quote, but we don't see the full context. There was a thing just the other day that floated all around where uh, Joe Biden was saying that he had created the, the I forget, the, 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 one of the best election fraud organizations in history or something. And so, of course, this spun out all around the web. But if, if you go back and you see what he's talking about, he's actually talking about a organization to combat 
the cases of election fraud. That's the broader context. But of course, that's clipped off and it's sent all around. So you have to trace that back to the original context. Where was he saying it? What question was he answering it? That sort of thing. And we find this too with a lot of research. So very often we'll find that the results of research of say a small 20 person study that says explicitly right there in the abstract, hey, don't draw big conclusions from this, it gets spun around the internet and uh, suddenly people are saying you've got to, uh, you know, if you only eat a, a, a diet uh, of exclusively pickles, you'll live forever. So these are, the, these are the sorts of things that you have to do, right? Stop, investigate the source, find better coverage, trace claims, quotes, and media. Now that sounds like a lot, but what we actually do, you don't need to do everything every time. And what we found is that students can get this down to one or two minutes on simple things. Some things are more complex, but even in the cases where they're dealing with more complex issues, that initial prep, finding out who wrote it, why, and why they might be qualified, finding out what other people say, are there better sources out there that they should be using, and making sure they understand the context. Even when it's a more difficult question, it puts them on better footing to get into the, the more complex and more nuanced question. And, you can tell and, I've been talking about this for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, I, I, you said things you can do in one or two minutes or even something as fast as a reverse image search might oh, yeah. Yeah. show something in like 30 seconds. So earlier we talked about moving at the speed of writing. Yeah. Uh, it's not like we're going to take an hour and analyze everything. We need some quick, just sense, should I go further with this thing? Yeah. Or should I just stop now and look elsewhere? One of the, another simple example is that, you know, you can do these deep investigations of tracing something to its original context. But one of the simplest things is someone shares a article with you and says, you know, this proves that the Democrats or Republicans are trying to steal the election. They took 3000 ballots in, I don't know, Luzerne County or something. Like just clicking through. <laughs> <laughs> before you share, and just doing a control F or a command F, just finding, trying to just using a, a basic page search uh, function to see whether you can find matching text that actually corroborates the claim that someone is using that article to make. And that's something that takes 30 seconds. And a lot of times you'll find that it's a, the person's framing it very well. Uh, sometimes you'll find that they are actually uh, being somewhat deceptive or are misinformed. Kim, you had mentioned, uh, and it seemed like you found it useful, the thing that you referred to as the ocean of information. And that's actually a metaphor that, Mike, you talk about in blog number three. Would you talk about that, the message in the bottle and the ocean? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the metaphor here is, you know, if you, I mean, I can probably do the story really quickly. If you imagine you're walking along the beach and you see a bottle floating in the lake or the ocean, in the bottle is a note and you run out and you, you pull the bottle out, you look at the note and the note says, oh, I don't know, you know, if it's electoral misinformation, it says the Democrats are swapping the mail-in ballots out or something for pre-printed ballots, uh, something like that. And you follow it, right? You follow it and you look and it, it seems well-sourced. It's, it's got a, apart from the explosive headline, it's got a good tone to it. It lays out an argument that sounds very valid about uh, there's some irregularities, some statistics that seem to be a little funky. 
follow the whole thing through, think critically about it. And then you go and you tell your friend, you say, hey, you won't believe this, but something very disturbing is going on here. They're swapping out the mail-in ballots for these pre-printed ballots. And your friend says, well, this is very disturbing. You know, how'd you come about this information? And you say, well, you know, I found it. I found a note in a bottle floating in a lake. But, you know, don't worry. I, I, I used critical thinking. I dived in deep. I checked everything. I, you know, I think your friend would be right in saying, all that's well and good, right? But the, you, you have to answer these fundamental questions first. Where's the note from? Do, you know, is this, is this sort of a consensus opinion of experts? Is this a significant minority opinion? You know, is this note in the bottle really your best source for this? Or could you find something else? And the point being that this is, this is sort of that shift, right? This is that shift. We end up consuming a bunch of messages, posts, direct messages, tweets, whatever it is, TikToks, right? that are these sort of messages in bottles that just wash on shore, but then we apply the same sort of methods and reaction we might apply if we pulled a academic journal off a shelf in a library. And it leads us astray because we haven't done that upfront work first. It's very hard to find out whether the note, the bottle is peer reviewed, I have to say. It's, <laughs> it's been a challenge. Kim, you were really interested in that, that story. Talk a little bit more about that. I just, I, you know, there's also a bit of which this is nothing new, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, so I just couldn't help but think about, it's gonna so, so nerdy, but you know, Socrates in the Phaedrus is really worried about this thing called writing that mm -hmm. we're inventing and that they'll just be these texts floating around with no author attached to them. We won't be able to make sense of them. They won't be able to defend themselves. And so in some ways with each new technology, whether it's writing itself or the printing press or the web, you know, we, we keep facing these same challenges that we've kind of always had about literacies and, and how you find out truth with a little t, you know, how you find out some information. It's just at a scale, you know, we have generations who are reading and writing more than any generation previously. Where I get Pollyanna-ish, is that I wanna believe that like libraries were invented as a way to deal with the amount of information out of printing presses, that we will still sort this out if we do our due diligence, right? That, that the web is still in its adolescence and that we will have to find a way to sort this out, especially in a democracy. I love right? that comment uh, too, because it really does point to the fact that in, in print culture, actually it took a, quite some time for us to develop a, a system of institutions in a system of conventions and a public understanding that helped us sort through those things. So, you know, on the public you know, understanding side, I mean, people understand that a pamphlet that someone hands you, you know, walking down the street is different than, uh, you know, a book that you might get out of your library because, you know, there's, there's levels of vetting. There's someone's made an investment at least, you know, into it. You know, you can track down the author a little, uh, a little more reliably. So there's a public understanding about that. But when we put everything into the blender of the web, everything starts looking the same. At least that's what we find with students is, is that, they, that, uh, that they don't have that distinction. They haven't built it up. And I think that many adults uh, as well. And then, yeah, your comment about the, the libraries, about uh, systems of scholarship and peer review, you know, the idea of publishing houses that actually, you know, edit and take some accountability for what they publish and you know you, you reap some of the reputational benefits of that 
it's going to be a while before we get those in place on the web. But in the meantime, maybe we build the better understandings. Well, Bud, you're you're right there in the library. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a tension actually. One of the things that's beautiful about the fact that anybody can write anything and put it anywhere and anybody can find it is that anybody can do that, right? And so in the classroom and in the library, I think we want to create spaces where, and I get pitched all the time, platforms that will allow anybody to be a published author in our public library, right? Which sounds wonderful. But then anybody can be a published author in our library. And, and again, it's wonderful. But then I think about some of the materials, and I work in a popular materials library, some of the things that our patrons want us to purchase and make available, I wouldn't necessarily say are vetted to the extent that I wish they were, nor should they necessarily be because there's this weird tension between what people want and what we should provide. And uh, then at the library as, as the IT uh, sort of guy, I'm continually wondering about, we provide the internet. Well, how much of it should we provide? And what does that mean? And, and so the library for many in our community is the place where they get information, but it's not necessarily the place where we through the information itself have vetted and, and provided all the answers. And we do that sometimes with librarians and staff, but, but it's a beautiful mess. And I don't think it's a mess we're gonna solve anytime soon. And I, I get, I, I worry a little bit when people say, but thankfully the library has figured this out or thankfully publishing <laughs> has figured this out. Cause I don't think that's true at all. Uh, I think those are tensions in all of those spaces. Well, I think, I think there's a difference between figuring it out and you know, getting it down to a workable mess, let's say. And I think what we have currently with the web, you know, at least in the realm of some of this political and medical misinformation, is it, is it has become, at least for, at the moment, a bit of an un unworkable mess. And I agree with you. I, I was, you know, there at the beginning of the, uh, the web and I, you know, had some techno-utopian ideals maybe <laughs> initially. You know, I think there are a lot of people on this publisher. call that may have had techno utopian <laughs> that may have started with, and anybody can publish. And, yeah, and, still, still yeah. might actually. And you yeah, realize yeah, yeah. that anybody can publish. So, yeah. you know, it's both. It is both. You know, one other thing I just I wanted to mention was that also that it, we're not the text. We all know the text is more than just words on a page, but really, it's a lot more now. And so, there's videos and there's memes and there's mm -hmm. there's just so much and I went to a school one day about a year and a half ago to talk to kids and teachers about journalism and I asked the kids where they got their news and they said YouTube almost every one of them yeah. I was sort of taken aback I thought well maybe Twitter or Instagram but YouTube and I, I mean all these things I think you can still test them to find out where they're coming from and where they originate and did they come from a bottle in a lake but it does it's so much more expansive than when we what we used to think about in terms of the written word and, and we encourage kids to make videos too mm -hmm. totally that's right that's right I do want us to get, we'll get soon to some of the stories, this notion also of the role that narrative plays uh, in myths and disinformation. But, but just to note, I think for all of us, whether it's teachers or librarians or journalists, that there's a desire to get to ever more credible and authoritative sources. So kind of all of us are in the position of trying to nudge anyone, a patron at the library or a young person 
to this is a little bit more trustworthy than that. Maybe not perfect, but I would go look at that rather than this. So this notion of building trust in more credible options rather than distrusting everything you see because everything is a mess and everything is a problem. In the education space, we don't want to say that everything lacks credibility. We want to say there are some options that are better. And it feels to me like that's also a space that also journalists, your journalism students, interview this person, not that person. This is a better choice for an interview, or this is a better source in the library, or have you looked at this in the freshman comp class? Yeah. So one of the things that people have referred to social media too, that's come up, that's sort of like a little different thing than just wandering the web and finding a website. The way that a YouTube video or Twitter is pushed to you with algorithms and that sort of thing. We know that those are all parts of things that we have to think about. But one of the things that Mike, you were blogging about then over this last month is this notion that individual items in a social media feed in some ways work because they're part of larger narratives. There is a bigger context that that item is in and that they're not necessarily, Dina, you said earlier, you know, the fake news issue. And we did see, like when we learned about the Macedonian teenagers, we do see that there are totally invented news sites. But a lot of what we're seeing is not totally invented anymore. It's actually got a something there that's misconstrued or improperly framed. And Mike, talk about that because you were um, following what was out there yeah. this particular election season. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is really how, I mean, to some extent, it's not entirely new in disinformation campaigns. But it, it's certainly more prominent this cycle than it was, say, in 2016, partially because in 2016, it was, I would say, a little more possible to push, like, absolutely fake things through the platforms. It really, there really was very little to prevent you. Whereas now, it's a, it's, a little, it's a little bit harder. And so what you find is a lot of this stuff where you'll have individual events that in themselves might be true or might be slightly misframed, but they feed into these, they feed into these larger narratives. And sometimes they're framed just piece by piece as they roll out. One example we do talk about is the is the mail dumping, you know, thing that has been happening. Well, postal workers have dumped mail for a long time. I mean, we I don't know if you remember like, you know, Seinfeld and Newman, but there, there is a thing that happens sometimes when postal workers cannot complete their route and instead of completing the route, they, they discard mail. And so this is sort of this ongoing thing. And it happens at relatively low frequency. But, but if you as uh, either missing, someone misinformed or someone seeking to actively disinform, decide to take each one of those events and sort of push it up and hype it up and say, you know, wow, this, you know, this is pretty strange, a mail dumping in a rural Trump voting community, you know, or, hey, look at this, uh, this person, uh, this, this po postal worker dumped mail, registered as a Democrat. So you start to frame this larger thing that's, that's really not connected in any sort of uh, systemic way 
but you start to build out this, you start to build out this narrative and what people start to feel is that there is something going on that's very nefarious and very connected and very directed, but, it, but it's created out of all these things that, you know, happen on any given day at a certain level of, at a certain level of randomness. There's also this other thing uh, going on uh, that some people might be familiar with. Uh, so if you think about uh, there's things like QAnon and most people have bumped into a uh, some of this stuff around QAnon, this theory that every president before Trump, but after Reagan was is part of some say, satanic uh, cult of pedophilia. So that's that's a that's a that's a, a deep conspiracy community over here. But one of the things that they've done is they've pushed this uh, save the children tag right out to a lot of places on on Facebook and on Twitter building this idea that there are, there's this massive amount of child sex trafficking, but not pulling in the larger conspiracy, at least at first. And so what you find is you find a lot of people not knowing where this stuff came from, not fully understanding the narrative that they're starting to engage with. We'll pick it, you know, who doesn't want to save the children, right? And maybe you're shocked because these numbers seem very high. You don't know that they're fake, right? But these numbers seem very high. And so you, you, a lot of times people begin to get engaged with this stuff because they don't fully understand the agents behind what's being pushed to them. And they don't fully understand the narrative that is slowly being built for them. And by the time they do, whether it's a QAnon narrative, whether it's a sort of a white supremacist narrative or, or, or something like that, very often at that point, they're so pulled in to that narrative, so pulled into that community that they're, it's just, it's just very difficult for them to, to get out. I, I, it's funny, I was watching an episode of The Vow, that program on HBO the other day, and, and one, of the, one of the people there who had gotten out of cult said, you know, no one joins a cult. <laughs> no one joins a cult. You, you join something that you think is a good thing, and by the time you figure it out, you're in a cult, you know? And uh, that's, that's uh, something I think we have to I think we got to think really seriously about that because because you do see this happening. I think a lot of people are getting some personal experience with this, where people start engaging with a bunch of stuff on this sort of granular, what seems like a factual level, but not realizing necessarily the narratives that they're being slowly sucked into and manipulated in many cases into. And of course, it's only human to use narrative to make sense of the world, but in our particularly partisan times, there are also classic, the Democrats will do anything, the Republicans will do anything that makes something sort of automatically for some people feel believable without even a deep look at it. I'm curious, does this resonate with what you hear among students or what comes up when you're in conversation about issues in your own practice? Tell you, it's it's actually reminding me a lot of how I'm trying to disentangle friendship and deprogramming in most of the online communities that I'm on. Right, so the brother-in-law that that is trying to carry the narrative of of this situation, or the the friend of a friend, or the husband of a uh, colleague, as I'm experiencing quite now, right now, that that suddenly we're put in the role of you're both bystander and maybe upstander, and then you're the person who's supposed to try to do some media literacy work so that you can restore uh, whatever Thanksgiving's gonna look like this year. 
So I see, I see a lot of those moments where we have to shift back and forth between somebody who's along for the ride and somebody who needs to counter a narrative. And these are powerful, powerful stories. I think it's important to remember that, yeah, just like you said, nobody joins a cult. Nobody's the victim or villain of their own story, right? Everybody's the hero of, of the story they're trying to tell. So this is, it gets personal in a hurry and the volume of stuff that people are getting to play with is getting dangerous too. So my wife, who is also an English teacher and also a member of the Colorado State University Writing Project, has spent the last several days online trying to have a conversation about what it means to be a discerning middle person right now, you know, eight days out from the American election. And even though she's a friend and a teacher and, and a trusted friend and teacher in all these spaces, she's the villain because she's challenging some of these narratives and stories. And so uh, if, if we struggle in that way in our social relationships, I think about all the, the classroom spaces and the library spaces where I'm talking to casual uh, folks, it, I think it's much harder in those spaces and in some ways easier. And gosh, it's a mess. And I'm glad that I don't have to worry so much about where I'm going to spend Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> you know, first of all, like those of us who've been around teenagers, like it's a hotbed of narrative stories made up straight, you know, you, you, you can hardly prevent teenagers from being taken up with some of these things. I don't know what the excuse is of the adults who, go, who are into this, but I'm speaking about this basically from this uh, work I did this summer with kids I didn't, most of whom I didn't know. I, I already knew a few of them because they were in some of the journalism classes of the teachers. But basically it was, it was online and it was Philadelphia kids and suburban kids and one girl from New Delhi, India, who found us on the internet and joined us for the week. But anyway, I think something about the pandemic, the demonstrations, the Black Lives Matter, that there's been a shift in young people's interest in having their voices heard and their belief that their voices can be heard. And one of the things I and none of the kids I worked with wanted to write about the election, although I wanted them to, but they didn't. But, but they wrote about important things, the pandemic, inequality, Black Lives Matter, police shootings. So, you know, those are important. Anyway, I found that the desire and interest in finding the right people to interview, the information that was the best, that there was a heightened sense of the importance of doing that. And it's just like, you know how when kids are writing and they care about what they write about, they have a greater interest in having standard English or good organization. I think it's a similar kind of thing. And I hadn't really thought about it much, but I think it, it offers us kind of a window or a a real opportunity to really push them around some of the things that SIF pushes around in terms of understanding what information is and what information needs to be paid attention to. One thing, one thing I, I really like about that is, is part of what you're saying is with some of these issues they care about, they, they exercise more care, you know, that, that there's a higher level of care. And I, I think one of the things 
around conspiracy, around narratives, uh, around misinformation and disinformation, that I try to communicate to people is that spreading disinformation and spreading some of these conspiracy theories, these narratives, there's a short-term gain to it for whatever argument you're trying to make. Yeah, you can get people riled up. You know, you can maybe you know get people on your side for uh, 20 minutes or something like that. You can get yourself all riled up and motivated if you if you buy into some of these deeper things. But over time, it's it ends up being corrosive to what you actually want to achieve. So if you think about these women who I imagine they had a, a, a sincere concern about the welfare of children, right? Well, there is human trafficking problems in the U.S. It's mainly about immigrant uh, families. It's it's mainly about child workers and things like that. If they wanted to work on that, they could, right? But instead, they're being pulled into this conspiracy world and all that passion and all that care and all that energy that could go to actually addressing the problems they care about is, is sort of being sucked up by this, by this, um, by this sort of <laughs> loose web of, you know, just, of just really crazy stuff. You know, and I think it's like that with a lot of things. I think that's like that with politics as well. You know, if you care, if you legitimately care about a voter fraud and about the security of elections, there are absolutely issues you could engage with, you know, around the security of machines, around some of the aging infrastructure. There's lots of things you could engage with there. And, but if you really truly cared about that, getting sucked into some of these mail dumping conspiracies or ideas that there's actually warehouses of pre-filled in ballots that get swapped out of, the, I mean, that's actually not going to accomplish uh, the things that you, you purportedly care about. So I really, I really like, I really like that observation that having students think about like what they want to achieve and through that lens and tying that to the idea that if you really care about it, you've got to be really careful about the sorts of information that you pull in, about the sorts of narratives that you, you adopt, because it will be the difference between you becoming, you know, someone over here ranting on Facebook and you having uh, what is an actual impact in the world. Well, Mike, what you're talking about now names another point that you were making in a different blog. So one of your blogs really looked at the mail dumping stories that were out there and how, in fact, having a narrative that surrounds an event that might be an actual event, like the dropping of some mail, makes it into something it absolutely isn't. So that was sort of one set. But in another blog, you looked at the thing that you just mentioned, the idea, are there pre-printed ballots? Are people ready to kind of stack the election? And there you make a slightly different point, which is about expertise actually yeah. and sort of how you would read any of those if you had some expertise versus if you don't would you talk that through just a little bit yeah yeah sure so i mean we can just start with with a simple example we may on election night look at a unique sort of shift in how the election results roll in now it's all very confused. There's a lot of Democratic early voting. There's also a lot of Democratic mail-in ballots, right? There's a lot of uh, vote in person from the Republican side of things, but there's also been some early voting by Republicans. So no one quite knows what it will look like, but 
One of the things that experts have said is you may see some states start off the night red and shift to blue. And because of some of the early voting, you may actually see some states, it's possible, look like they're solid blue and then shift back to red. Now that's, that's a phenomena without an explanation that's going to come to mind. You know, that's a phenomenon that, that needs explaining in, in the minds of someone watching that, right? And the question is, who are you going to trust to say, does this look like something nefarious? Or does this look kind of like what we'd expect given the demographics of what we've seen? And as we've you know, talked about before, you know, the example of the bottle in the lake and the N95 mask goes into this a little bit, the amount of stuff that you have to know to actually know if something is odd or unusual, that's a domain expertise that people really, really undervalue. So yes, anybody can look up the Wikipedia page and find out this or that, right? Anybody can, can you know, pull an Excel spreadsheet and notice that, hey, this is 10% off of what you'd expect. But people that have domain expertise bring something additional, which is they bring a lifetime of building the surrounding context of the problem where they can look at something and say, you know what, this here, this actually seems like what we would expect given what we know. This over here, this seems, this seems really odd, right? And part of what we have to do, and this is so hard, is we, we, have, we live in this culture where we're all possessed with this illusion of knowledge, right? And there is research on this. The web has absolutely made this worse. I can ask you any question and say, yeah, well, you know, if you think the election was stolen, like, how do you think that happened, right? And there you are on the other side of the DM doing some Googling and saying, well, you know, as we both know, Wyoming has this many electoral votes, right? You know, so it gives us this illusion of knowledge, right? It gives us this, this belief that we know more than we are because when people ask us for the details of something, in a pre-web world, when people say, well, how would that work? Well, okay, well, you say that happened. Well, how, remind me again, you know, what percent, what, what, what percentage of registered voters in Florida are democratic? When people say that in a pre-web world, we realize, hey, we don't know that. And maybe the reason we don't know that is we don't actually know this subject, right? In a web world, we're all possessed with this illusion of knowledge. And, and so part of the problem becomes when we see something, our temptation to believe that without that, that there's just a common sense understanding of it. And that, that the, you know, the, the perception of it, of someone that's worked 20 years in looking at issues of election fraud is equal to the perception of someone, you know, who pulled up, you know, a few blog posts in a, in a spreadsheet, right? These are very different, these are very different things. And so we've devalued expertise and we've got this illusion of knowledge. And, and what we have to do is we have to kind of come back and, and realize that, that, I don't know, domain expertise means a lot. And it means a lot specifically in these cases where you're asking, is this thing unusual or is it expected, yeah. right? That's the thing that experts tend to really have a sense of, right? That people without expertise, you got to learn the field before you even begin to take a shot at that. And yeah, so that's part of what we're trying to do is get people to realize that. And I think, you know, you can get there with students by having them start 
they're also experts on things. Yeah. And, and when, right. And if you start sometimes even with their stories, you know, it's so complicated, right? Because sometimes, particularly in first year comp, they will imagine that research doesn't have anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. There's a way in which it's depersonalized when actually really good research comes right out of the personal, the thing that's niggling you or puzzling you. I work pretty much exclusively in first year comp with educational opportunity program students. So mostly not white, intersectional in all other kinds of ways. And and so one of the things they really would care about, for example, and often comes up is an immigration story. And then they might want to tell their immigration story and then start looking at policies that impact immigration in a real way in their families. And because they're situated as experts in that, they, they, they do have an easier time saying that's not accurate or where's that coming from or that's not matching my experience. And while I don't think a lot transfers in learning, there's at least a little buy-in there to like, okay, so what, what happens when you're approaching something you know nothing about? How can you take that understanding of this new, anything we're close to, we, we so quickly can be like, mm, that's not right. I don't, that's yeah, not yeah. Right? yeah. So, you know, the starting with what they know. And then the other thing I think, you know, even, and this is what's really cool about the SIF method too, Mike, is like, I think, and I, I use a lot of Gunther Kress and just have students sometimes look at, for example, two websites that are approaching, you know, let's look at the nation and the national review or something, yeah. you know, and look at how they're describing the same story. What's carrying the rhetorical weight? How are they making those claims with font choice and image and color? And I don't want them to end with this kind of relative, right? Like, well, it's all messed up. Like, so that's, that's the fine line you're walking right but at least the just the noticing the stopping part of it just the noticing oh okay who are they pulling in as an interviewer or who are they you know those kinds of things that you can they get really good they get they're really good at it you know over, over time in particular because they care one of, one of the games that we play sometimes after having students run through a fact checking exercise is after they've gone through it and they've kind of compiled what what the actual case is, what the experts think, what the actual event was, what the surrounding context was. We'll have them go into Google News, type in the search terms, and just see like 10 articles listed with the headlines on that particular event, and just have the students say, hey, which one of these headlines, which one of these headlines do you think does the best job of representing, representing you know, the truth as you know it? you know, here. And it, I, I like it because it's not, it's not saying that, you know, one headline is completely wrong and one headline is right, but it gets away from the, the complete relativism because the students can see, look, it's very clear that at least that the Daily Mail headline here is woefully insufficient, you know, compared to the, the headline here from, you know, even the Wall Street Journal or, or Washington Post, right? That they're, 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 things are in some cases relative, but there, there's, there are, there are some real standards. In getting that balance right is, I think, uh, it can be difficult. But I, I think students grasp it when you give it to them. One of the things I always loved about journalism is that uh, since we have our little set here of a couple of journalism advisors on this call, is that this notion that you are going to be published. And someone is going to take you seriously and expect you to be an expert in something they don't know. The yeah. opposite of a teacher assigning like an essay answer 
where I know much more about whatever the topic is. And the question is, how closely can you cover all the stuff that we covered in class? That's, that's not it. This is about actually somebody putting some trust in you to be accurate. And so actually, really, you start from the premise that you don't know enough, that you really absolutely don't know enough. So you yeah. need to find not only sources to read, but also people to interview because you don't yet know enough. And so that, that combination of you need to be trusted, your name is on this thing as an author, and you, today you don't know enough and you need to know more, feels to me such an important thing for writers. And in some ways, the, the participation in social media, which to me is also authorship, mm -hmm. so I don't want to say it isn't, but the ease of just, oh, well, I was just retweeting it. Oh, I just found it interesting and I'm circulating is a very different sense of my responsibility for the information I'm passing along than that. No, your name is really on it. I don't think anybody who retweets or forwards or shares on, you know, ever, uh, not nobody, but I mean, a lot of our young people or our adults or the people at Thanksgiving dinner don't really see, no, I've put the stamp of authority behind this when I circulated it. Kind of a different feel. We're finding more and more in the research that a lot of this, a lot of what we see as problems are really facilitated by this idea that, that well, I'm just amplifying it, but I'm not really commenting on it. You know, I'm just amplifying, but I'm not asserting it, right? This, this walking away from the idea that uh, somehow we're asserting things when we share them. And I think there's sort of a middle ground here. I don't necessarily think that everything you share, of course, you're not necessarily asserting. I mean, there are things that detail people's lives, experience, life experience in ways I can't speak to, but I find it interesting and I'm going to share. I, I can't assert that, right? That's, a, that's not an assertion. But it is an assertion at this one very specific level, which is I am asserting that this is worth your attention and this is worth your time. And if you're sharing it and not specifically noting that there are some issues with it, you're making a claim that you haven't found significant issues with it, right? So there's, there's sort of these uh, Im implicit claims, you know, what linguists call implicatures that, that we have to start thinking about. And one of the things that gets me really excited about this work in terms of teaching this in a class is it, it gives us an entry point into talking about not only what you say, but what you are implying, you know, in a given discourse context, what you are implying by sharing this, what you're implying by you know, saying this, what you're implying, that, you know, through these, through these actions that a lot of students, I do think, and a lot of adults feel, well, this is value neutral. You know, I'm just hitting retweet. You know, I, I, I retweet, you decide, right? Life doesn't work like that. Over the last few years, one of the things that's frustrated us is that kids, like the rest of us, want to have their opinion heard. And, you know, and now, of course, you can do that tweeting and Instagramming and all that. And, you know, there's always the push because we're, because of who we are, that you, you can have your opinion and you need to back it up. <laughs> you need to make it an argument and you need to have some evidence and you need to, so on and so forth. And so I, you know, I, I love to have, enable them to share their point of view and their perspective, because I think it's really important that we hear it. But I think that by this, with, with journalism, 
we're sort of really, really pushing on like, why are you saying this? Or where does this come from? Or how do you know? Or, and, and that it's both for them as consumers of, of media and information, and also as those, mostly I work with them in terms of their writing. So it's about the, what they're presenting to the world. And my hope is that, you know, this will make a difference. And, and, and maybe I should be out in somewhere else doing this where people tend to be taken in by QAnon and various other things. But, but you know, kids in Philadelphia are taken in by other things. With uh, SIFT, students actually do start off with just opinions and just kind of the reaction. It's just, it's just you could show them any prompt about guns and you'd get the same reaction, right? It doesn't even matter what prompt you're showing them. When they do actually learn the techniques, we do really find a shift where they're excited to tell you what they found out, what they now know. And I, I think that's the antidote, right? In two ways, right? I think both that they had an investigation and maybe before, you know, what's your opinion? Maybe it's, it's just like, hey, tell me what you found out. And that's exciting, right? But I think also when we think of students' personal experience, it's kind of in the same vein. Okay, you know, we, when we talk about students uh, writing, you know, what you, students writing a paper or students writing, you know, any sort of writing assignment, one of the things you're really trying to get them to understand is what do you know that most people would not, right? Not necessarily, your opinion is great, right? But, you know, I don't know, my, my parents had a, comments about opinions uh, that I won't <laughs> repeat here. But what's really interesting is, is what do you know that your reader might not know? What do, you, what do you know that other people could benefit from? And I think part of it is shifting that, that focus and, and doing that within the constraints of a, of, of a method that you know, you know, focuses you know, in, in these uh, efforts. Anyway, I'll, I'll hand it over to uh, Elise to do that. No, I'll do that to, we're gonna go to Bud. <laughs> I, I think I take away from this conversation something that I'm thinking a lot about lately, which is, is I've, I've done more with infrastructure than I have with individuals. And I think about the spaces that we make and how we help them to be better spaces, to help people be better people, right? A SIFT in a lot of ways reminds me of, of uh, the old language about building a good crap detector, right? I think you always wanna be helping people and, and spaces get better at sifting through the crap, right? And so a big moment for me over the last year or two has been as a, as a 42 year old white guy with plenty of privilege to, to, to do the sit, the S part, right? To stop and then to figure out if the message that needs to be said is a message that I need to say, or do I need to be looking for voices to amplify to help other people say it? And so I think about how media literacy sometimes is about figuring out what's true and what's not, but also how, how you can create ways to help the truth get where it needs to go. And so that's what I'm wondering about as we wrap up tonight. I, I think the core of, of, all, of so much of this is, is a sort of intellectual and personal humility. And I honestly think that uh, people that start with that, I mean, I would like them to adopt SIFT, but if it, but if, uh, if it came to a choice between SIFT and, and sort of an intellectual and personal humility, I would take the humility every time. Well, I would hope that's what that's why we teach, right? Because not not about something we have to teach, but about something we have to learn. It's what keeps you in teaching as your students are teaching you something every day. 
I'm going to leave, you know, I've been thinking a ton lately about our responsibility to the web. And one of the, because I teach the most of my courses with a focus on digital literacy, um, you know, we're the, we're the web. <laughs> like, yeah. So um, what's our responsibility in terms of what we search for and what we click and what we amplify and what we circulate. And I think that students can feel agency in that way too. It's not just the wash coming over them, but we have a responsibility for what we put out there in the world and for what we are, you know, looking for. We do a lot of reading lately of Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Noble and Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin, just thinking about the way that algorithms in particular are shaping what we see, you know, on the web and our responsibility for that. So yeah, that's, you know, ongoing, ongoing work. I think that's a, a, a great, there's a great wrap up in those, that line of comments. And I think to say on behalf of the National Writing Project, part of why this area interests us so much, media literacy in general, but yes, also, especially these techniques, SIFT is one, is a set of them that we really think works for writers. And of course, there are other ways into these conversations as well. But to be someone who teaches young writers is to be someone also who is always helping young people be the creator of our information ecology. So we want them to put their stuff out there. That's what we're trying to help them to do. So I love that, Kim. They, they are makers of the web uh, and it will go on far beyond our classrooms. So that responsibility to the web comes through our teaching of them. So I, I think uh, folks are used to are using the phrase information ecosystem uh, a lot in the NWP that we're in a kind of information environment in the web and elsewhere, everywhere there's information. So there's a kind of environmental approach, you know, like we all have to clean up the environment. You know, you do your recycling, you think about energy use, you do all those little things. And if we were all doing it, what would that do for our information ecosystem? So we're thrilled that you all followed through with the blogs. And in the next couple of days, you may see some of these narratives and some of these stories playing their way out playing their way through the election. We know in 2020 that the scale of early voting and mail-in and absentee voting is one that's likely to create an unusual election night, one where we really don't know, like we're used to seeing the major networks and news outlets calling the election on the night of the election. It's likely not to be. So for all of you who are educators, you're kind of a first responder to questions that might come to you next week about what we know or what we can trust about the election coming to you from kids coming to you from families you may want to read those blogs and gosh darn it just be ready 2020 be ready thank you everybody it was great to have you in this conversation mike thank you and uh, see you all on the other side Right. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.